In, in recent years, in several communities across the, the American Southwest, or really the South, we've seen various Confederate monuments being removed from public spaces. I, I'm sure you've all observed that on television and the news. One of those monuments was a, a really massive bronze uh, sculpture of Confederate General Robert E. Lee in Charlottesville. It was taken out of the downtown area. There was removed on July of, of 2021. It was removed because it had become the, the center of a, uh, of a protest, or, or rather a rally, and then it was removed in July and quickly became the center of another issue, a, a long protracted legal battle. Well, last month those battles came to a conclusion and the process to melt down that statue has begun. Now, at the heart of the controversy was the question of whether or not monuments should stand commemorating historical people and events that, that represent really sordid points in our nation's history, things that we should not be proud of, and things like slavery and, and the Civil War. One, one side will argue that, that monuments serve as a celebration of ideas that, that we should be opposed to. And they might be rallying point for these ideas that we should be against. The, the other side fears that if you take down the monuments, they are there to cause us to remember. If you remove them, we may forget the errors of the past. And of course, if you don't remember history, what are you doomed to do? Repeat it. So you see the two sides of the argument. Well, this morning, at some level at least, our psalm shares the later concern. That if we don't remember the past... We will repeat it. Now let me ask you, I think all of you know probably your psalms well enough. What is the longest psalm that we have? 119, okay. Anybody know the second longest psalm? Are we guessing? You're right. This is the second longest psalm in the Psalter. It's a really long psalm and it makes it clearly then the longest psalm in this series as we're looking through the third book of the Psalter. We're in the section of Psalms that have been attributed in some fashion to a man named Asaph. He was a musical leader in the, the central place of worship during the time of King David. Our psalm, as I said, is a long one. But the lesson that it teaches, even though it's a long psalm, the lesson is not complicated. It's simply this. God demonstrated faithfulness should encourage faithfulness. God has demonstrated his faithfulness. Well, his demonstrated faithfulness should encourage our faithfulness. Not a complex lesson, is it? Let's jump right into our psalm this morning, since it is long. And in the first eight verses, what we have is a call to, to learn from the past. Uh, a call to learn right from the get-go here. The, the psalmist, Asaph, probably, uh, is calling us to listen up. Look at verse 1, listen, O my people, to my instruction, incline your ears to the words of my mouth. In other words, our psalmist is convinced that he has something important to say. He, he's about to instruct people on, on something that, that is necessary for them to hear. This is vital, this is worth their listening to. Now, remember that the Psalms, they're, they're songs, right? We've just spent the majority of our service so far singing. These are the songs of Israel. Asaph, as I said, served in the central sanctuary. 
He was one of the worship leaders. He led the people in music when they gathered for worship. And he's using this song here to instruct the, the people. Now, I know I've said this before, but it bears repeating. Much of what we learn about God, we gather, when, when we come together, we, we learn, we gather our knowledge through music. Our songs teach us about God. They, they teach us both through the words as well through their music. The, the words instruct our minds. That, that means it's important that we are careful with the lyrics of our song. It's important that they're doctrinally correct. correct. We want to teach truth, right? But it's also important that our songs are weighty, weighty enough to warrant our time. You know, there's a reason that when gathering here, we don't sing the children's song, my God is so big, so strong and so mighty. It's truth, right? There's nothing my God cannot do. That, that's truth, but it's not very weighty truth. Consider the song we opened with this morning, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. And if you think on through the rest of the lyrics, there's weight there. there there's deep teaching about God. We want our songs to reflect that. At the same time, while the words teach our, our brains, the music teaches our emotions. So it's important that the tunes shape proper affections about God. Choosing worship music is not a matter of our personal preference. I like this kind of music and not that kind of music. No, it's a matter of selecting music that aligns with God's revelation of himself so that we are shaping our affections to love what God loves. Asaph understands these truths about music. He's going to use this song that he's composed to instruct the, the people who are gathered there for worship. Now, his music has not been preserved. Some people actually point to that and use that as an argument and say, well, music doesn't matter. That's another sermon. I disagree completely. Music matters deeply. It shapes our affections. It shapes our emotions. But Asaph's music has not been preserved. His words have been. So let's read his initial instructions. Verse 2. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old, which we have heard and known, and our fathers have told us. We will not conceal them from their children, but tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord, and his strength and his wondrous works that he has done. Maybe we should ask Jerry to work on putting this whole psalm to music for us. That will keep him busy for a week or two. For he, verse 5, established a testimony in Jacob and appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers that they should teach them to their children. That generation to come might know, even the children yet to be born, that they may arise and tell them to their children that they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep his commandments and not be like their fathers, a stubborn and rebellious generation, a generation that did not prepare its heart and whose spirit was not faithful to God. We're going to pause there, and one quick clarification I want to make is when we, before we think about, there's two main thoughts I want to bring out of these verses we just read, but I do want to clarify, in verse 2, we read the word parable, and, and immediately we probably think of New Testament parables from the gospel, those, those short little stories that Jesus used to teach points. Well, this Hebrew word doesn't have quite the same meaning. 
Instead, this word that's used here in the Hebrew is used for longer passages where examples are used to teach something. It's not a, a short little story. It's a long example that, that's teaching. And that's what we have in this psalm, an extended parable in the Hebrew form. So what is our psalmist trying to teach us here within this song? Well, in these initial verses, he tells us, he states that there's really two things, if we think through ways he wrote and we just read, there's two things that we need to learn. First, we need to learn our duty. Our duty. Our duty is teach the next generation about God. Teach the next generation about God. Each generation has a duty to teach the next generation about God. The goal is not to come up with something new, the, the goal is to remember what is old and pass it along. There, there's a history that, that needs to be retained. There, there's a history of what God has done. The, the current generation, the one living now, needs to tell the upcoming generation, that would be children, what God has done. In fact, Asaph here reminds the people in verse 5 that God has commended that, or commanded that this be done. Fathers are to teach their children about the Lord. Why is God praised? Children need to learn. How has God shown his strength? Children need to learn. What wondrous works are we praising God for? Children need to learn. I cannot say this strongly enough. Each generation has a duty. We have a duty to teach the next generation about God. Now, a few of the next generation are sitting here this morning. When I look around, there's, there's a few teenagers. There's a few children of children. A few of you have your children, even elderly, I shouldn't say elderly, grown children. That's the word I'm looking for, sitting here. Not elderly. Becca, you're not elderly yet. She's about to lose it here. So some of us can be teaching even within this room. We need to teach the next generation. As we talk about what God has done, the next generation that are here are hearing it. In fact, that's one of the reasons why it's so important for families to place church attendance above all other priorities in your life. There are all kinds of things that come up and want to have your time. Church needs to be first. Because this is one of the main places that your children will hear about what God has done in the past. They need that. They need that more than they need to attend a birthday party or a soccer game or traveling sports team or whatever it is. They need to hear about what God has done. And parents, so do you. Because of that, they need to be here. They need to hear the collective voice of the church. And you need to have them here because... By letting them hear the collective voice of church, you share the duty that you primarily have to teach them about God. You share it. I say share because, parents, you cannot outsource your responsibility to teach your children about God. You can share it, but you can't outsource it. We, we live in a, a culture where we outsource everything. Most of us know how to do very few things, so we outsource everything we don't know. Well, you can't outsource teaching your children. You have the primary duty. Deuteronomy 6-7 states that 
You're to be teaching your children about God as a normal part of your life. As you go through the daily course of life, you're to be teaching them. But you don't have to bear the duty alone, parents. You can share it with your worshiping community by bringing your children to church. You bring them here, and then we help teach. So let me talk to all of us, church. That means we, as church, must do our duty to teach the next generation. Every time we sing a song of worship, we, collectively, are teaching the next generation about God. What do the members of Next Generation learn when they're sitting next to you? Do they see a love for God as you're singing? Or do you look like you're bored to tears? What are you teaching about God? Do the young people of the church see you eagerly listening to God when it's time for the preaching? When, when it's time for His Word to be opened, do they see you eagerly listening? Or are you doodling in a book, playing games on your phone, grabbing a nap? What are you teaching? In fact, when their parents bring them here to church so that they can learn from the church, are you teaching them with an empty spot where they know you normally sit? Think about the message you teach when your spot is empty. Parents are trying to say, church is important. Well, if it's so important, then how come the rest of the church isn't here? Are you stepping up to the duty that God has called all of us to, to teach the next generation? Our duty, teach the next generation about God. But that's only half of what we need to learn in these first verses. Teaching alone is not enough. Teaching is an intellectual assignment, but there's more to it than that. We also need to see our purpose, our purpose. Our purpose is call the next generation to follow God. Call the generation to follow God. Our job is not complete until the children know, according to verse 7, that they should put their confidence in God. It's not complete until they know that they should keep His commandments. Knowledge is not enough. Knowledge needs to lead to obedience. Are you teaching that? Are you calling the next generation to follow God? Asaph is communicating this to the people. He, he, he's not laying this burden on the parents alone. This is the gathered community of worship, for worship. We need to hear this call. We are all called upon to call the next generation to follow God, to obey God. Certainly we do that by modeling obedience ourselves. But we also do it as we get involved in the lives of the children and we verbally call them to follow God. Frankly, Carl Gray should never have to recruit children's workers. Instead, he should be turning away a line of people saying, I want to be involved in the lives of our children. Notice, a large portion of teaching involves warning the children not to follow bad examples of the previous generation. That's what verse 8 says. Don't be like those stubborn and rebellious ones, those who were not faithful to God. Now, 
I hope all of us fear serving as negative examples. Hopefully, we're not going to have to teach people, don't be like Dwight Schultz, who did not follow God. We want to serve as positive examples, not negative ones. But for that to happen, we need to follow God ourselves and then call the generation to do likewise. Follow us as we follow God. Our purpose, call the next generation to follow God. Let us heed that call. Let us learn from the past. Let us recognize that that we have this duty to teach the next generation about God with the purpose of calling them then to, to follow God. Essentially, that's what the rest of this psalm does. It gives us an example of how we are to teach them about the history of the past and call them from what they learned to follow after God. My, my plan is to read our way through the psalm slowly, observing the example that, that Asaph here sets before us. That The heart of this psalm, really from verse 9 all the way through verse 64, demonstrates The simple idea that we should learn from historical examples. Learn from historical examples. Asaph, he primarily focuses on two generations. He'll mention three, but his his focus is really two. Two generations that are separated by centuries in, in Israel's history. He focuses on them to show that failure to learn from one generation creates a failure in the next generation. Now, I'm not going to assume everyone here knows their Old Testament history enough to catch all the references. I'll try to fill in some of the gaps so at least we can follow the flow of ideas that Asaph is presenting. Also, as we slowly read through, I'm not going to give you an outline of the psalm. My my goal is to help us follow the flow of, of ideas as we go. This is a song about Israel's history. Is Asaph, the, the one who composed it, he can assume the people that he's singing this with, he's singing it to, they're hearing it, they know the details well. It's something kind of like if we make a brief reference to some of the events around our Independence Day. We might refer to the signing of the Declaration or, or Washington crossing the Potomac. As Americans, we know what we're talking about in a similar fashion. All I have to do is mention 9-11 and instantly we all know about an event. Well, Asaph is doing that here. He's pointing to events that, that highlight generations in, in the period of Israel's history. He, he begins by pointing to the final generation of the period of the judges. I'm going to call this generation the silo, the, the Shiloh, not silo, Shiloh generation. Consider the, the Shiloh generation, picking up in verse 9. The sons of Ephraim were archers equipped with bows. Yet they turned back in the day of battle. They did not keep the covenant of God and refused to walk in his law. They forgot his deeds and his miracles that he had shown them. Now, I'll admit, I'm reading ahead when I call this the Shiloh generation. There's nothing in these initial verses that tell us that's the generation Asaph is heading toward, other than... Perhaps you could say, well, he references Ephraim being the the dominant tribe at the time, and that was true in that generation, but that was true actually for several generations. Shiloh is the place where the tabernacle eventually was settled after the Israelites conquered the land under under Joshua. If I don't mix up some names today, we're all going to be amazed. 
By, by the end of the time of, of, of Joshua, the Israelites had conquered the, the promised land. And then during the period of the judges, the tabernacle eventually came to, to sit at Shiloh. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was at. And at the very end of that time frame, there was a significant defeat for Israel. There was a battle against the Philippines, and that's the event that we're heading toward. But before we get there, we're called to remember the Exodus generation. This is the largest section of our song, Remember the Exodus Generation. It runs for many, many verses. So we're going to take in small chunks, beginning at verse 12. Remember God's power is where Asaph starts. Remember God's power, verse 12. He, being God, wrought wonders before their fathers in the land of Egypt, in the field of Zoan. He divided the sea and caused them to pass through, and he made the water stand up like a heap. Then he led them with the cloud by day and all the night with a light of fire. He split the rocks in the wilderness and gave them abundant drink like the ocean's depths. He brought forth streams also from the rock and caused waters to run down like the rivers. I'll pause and explain Asaph here begins this really large section with kind of just a quick overview of some of the, the greatest highlights of, of God's wondrous deeds to this generation. As God rescued the, the forefathers and mothers uh, of the nation from Egypt when they were slaves there, he parted the Red Sea, he, he led them through the wilderness with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He gave them water to drink from a rock. It, it was miracle after miracle, it was kind of the, the picture he's painting here early on for that generation. Events that, frankly, this generation of Shiloh that comes much later would know very well. After all, Asaph is even past that generation. This is part of the history of the nation. They know these things. Of course, the people who lived through these events would have known them even better. So he moves on from remembering God's power to remember the people's response. Yet they still continued to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rocks so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Now, did you happen to notice in, in these verses so far that there was a distinct use of he and then a distinct use of they? He, God, did miracle after miracle in the first set of verses that I read. They, the people, responded with sin. The reason God gave them water from a rock was because they grumbled. Uh, they grumbled against Moses, Aaron, and ultimately against God. They, they doubted that, that God would be able to care for them in the desert wilderness that they had to cross through as they went from Egypt to the Promised Land. It was during this time, even after God had given them water from a rock, that they complained they wanted more. First they wanted bread. Then when God gave them bread, then they wanted meat. Wow. Never satisfied. So remember God's anger. Therefore, the Lord heard and was full of wrath. 
And a fire was kindled against Jacob. And anger also mounted against Israel because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. The Lord gave the people what they wanted, but it came at great cost. For example, Numbers 11 tells us that God's anger broke forth and fire consumed many people that were on the edge of the camp because they were grumbling, wanting more from him. Remember God's anger. Yet we also need to remember God's grace. Yet he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. He caused the east wind to blow in the heavens, and by his power he directed the south wind, when he rained meat upon them like the dust, even winged fowl like the sands of the seas. Then he let them fall in the midst of their camp, round about their dwellings, so that they ate and were filled, and their desire he gave to them. Despite the grumbling, despite the unbelief of the people, God provided manna from heaven for the people. God sent quail for meat. They had all the food they needed and more. This is God's grace because they certainly didn't deserve this as a result of their grumbling and complaining. They didn't deserve such abundant provisions. But God's grace gave it to them anyway. At the same time, Remember God's judgment. Before they had satisfied their desire, verse 30, while their food was in their mouths, the anger of God rose against them and killed some of their stoutest ones and subdued the choice men of Israel. In spite of all this, they still sinned and did not believe in his wonderful works. This recurring sin of the people grumbling time and time again, it, it carried consequences. God's judgment brought death for many. He just plucks out one more example of that here to remind the people that God's judgment came upon the people. And yet, despite their experience of both God's gracious provisions and God's judgment, His wrathful judgment, this generation continued in sin, causing more and more judgment to fall again and again. So remember then the people's response. Verse 33. So he brought their days to an end in futility and their years in sudden terror. When he killed them, then they sought him in return and searched diligently for God. And they remembered that God was their rock and the most high God their redeemer. But they deceived him with their mouth and lied to him with their tongue. For their heart was not steadfast toward him, nor were they faithful in his covenant. Several of the severe judgments that, that fell on the people in the wilderness caused them to begin a cycle, that, that really a cycle that became all too familiar when we hit the, the time frame of the judges. Generation after generation kept repeating the same cycle. The, the people would turn back to God because of the judgment and seek redemption. Yet very quickly they demonstrated that the real redemption that they wanted was salvation from the judgment. They, they did not want redemption in the sense of yielding to God. Their, their hearts were not faithfully seeking God. 
regardless of how often they committed themselves to following God when the judgment was falling upon them, pretty soon they, they turned away again from the covenant that God had given them, the covenant that he had given that was meant to guide them as a nation. They stopped obeying God and, and quickly moved instead to disobedience. But a most surprising thing really comes at this point. Essentially, now Asaph suddenly takes us in a surprising direction in his song and says, remember God's compassion. In the midst of all this disobedience, remember God's compassion. Verse 38, but he, being compassionate, forgave their iniquity and did not destroy them. And often he restrained his anger and did not arouse his wrath. Thus he remembered that they were but flesh, a wind that passes and does not return. God would have been fully justified in destroying the sinful generation completely, just nuking them out of existence because of their rebellion. But instead, God displayed his compassion over and over, he showed his character, that he is a compassionate God. And he showed that by forgiving them. The, the reason the nation survived the wilderness wandering was because God was compassionate and patient. That generation died, but they died slowly enough that a new generation could arise. God spared them from an early death. And now to drive that point home, Remember the people's pattern. Remember the people's pattern. How often they rebelled against him in the wilderness and grieved him in the desert. Again and again they tempted God and pained the Holy One of Israel. They did not remember his power the day when he redeemed them from the adversary, when he performed his signs in Egypt and his marvels in the field of Zoan, and turned their rivers to blood and their streams they could not drink. He sent among them swarms of flies which devoured them and frogs which destroyed them. He gave also their crops to the grasshopper and the product of their labor to the locust. He destroyed their vines with hailstones and their sycamore trees with frost. He gave over their cattle also to the hailstones and their herds to bolts of lightning. He sent upon them his burning anger, fury and indignation and trouble, a band of destroying angels." He leveled a path for his anger. He did not spare their soul from death. He gave over their life to the plague and smote all the firstborn in Egypt, the first issue of their virility in the tents of Ham. Remember the pattern of rebellion in response to God's displayed power. That This was not an isolated event. God had displayed his power in miracle after miracle, and yet, over and over, the people forgot and turned away from God. Verses 43 through 51 list seven of the ten plagues that God sent on Egypt to free the people from slavery. Yet witnessing that mighty display, going from being slaves to free people, was not enough to produce lifelong faithfulness. There was no long-term dedication of the people to God. Remember the people's pattern. At the same time, remember God's faithfulness. God's faithfulness. Verse 42, But he led forth his own people like sheep 
and guided them in the wilderness like a flock. He led them safely so that they did not fear, but the sea engulfed their enemies. Israel here is pictured as a flock. This generation of the wilderness, they're pictured as a flock of sheep or goats. They had no reason to fear because they were under God's protection. He led them to safety and he destroyed all the enemies that confronted them. They had no military might of their own, but God protected them. In contrast to the people's fickleness, God displayed the steadfast faithfulness. What a God! What a God! Asaph has spent verses here telling us remember the Exodus generation. What a God that would be so faithful to such a people. Remember, that's the purpose of this psalm. Our psalmist is pointing to the mightiest displays of God's power, and then he he juxtaposes those displays of God's power against the fickleness of the people who benefited directly from God's power. Still, the fact that the nation of Israel exists at all is significant. So he moves on with, remember the conquest generation. The conquest generation, that's the generation that that descended out of the Exodus generation, the the people that were born in the wilderness wandering. Everything that had just been described happened to their parents. If any generation should remember these events, we'd expect this to be the generation that would remember it, the ones who grew up hearing mom and dad talk about the story. In fact, as they were kids, they watched some of these experiences as the people repeated that pattern of turning away from God, and God brought judgment. Furthermore, Asaph moves on and says, this generation had additional personal experience with God's faithfulness. Once again, remember God's faithfulness. Verse 40, or 54. So he, that's God, brought them, has to be a new generation now, because he brought them to the Holy Land. We know of the next generation that entered. To this hill country with his right hand had gained. He also drove out the nations before them and apportioned them for an inheritance by measurement and made the tribes of Israel dwell in their tents. God granted victory after victory to this generation. Joshua led the people across the Jordan River and God enabled the the brand new young nation of Israel to conquer all of the entrenched nations that currently occupied the land. Nations that were much greater, much mightier than Israel, at least if you were to compare on paper, might. They were much mightier than Israel, but they were not mightier than Israel's God. God allowed this generation to divide up the promised land among their tribes. And then sadly, remember the people's response. Yet, they tempted and rebelled against the Most High God and did not keep His testimonies, but turned back and acted treacherously like their fathers. They turned aside like a treacherous bow, for they provoked Him with their high places and aroused His jealousy with their graven images. This generation followed the exact same pattern as their parents. They put God to the test and they rebelled against Him. Rather than cleanse this land they just conquered of all the the wicked idolatry of the nations that God had allowed them to drive out. In fact, God said, you're driving them out because of their idolatry. After they had conquered the nation, they 
instead incorporated the idolatry into their own worship. Remember the conquest generation. He's very brief, but he says this first generation after the big exodus generation, remember them, the conquest generation. Remember this pattern of of incorporating idolatry into their worship because that pattern then runs for many generations in Israel's history. And the psalmist now jumps through all those generations forward several centuries, leaping over multiple generations, back to remember the Shiloh generation. Remember the Shiloh generation. Asaph doesn't spend a lot of time on the Shiloh generation, but this is where he's been driving all along. This is a generation that has all that history behind them. Verse 59. When God heard, he was filled with wrath and greatly abhorred Israel, so that he abandoned the dwelling place at Shiloh, the tent which he had pitched among the men, and gave up his strength to captivity and his glory into the hand of the adversary. He also delivered his people to the sword and was filled with wrath at his inheritance. Fire devoured his young men, and his virgins had no wedding songs. His priests fell by the sword, and his widows could not weep. God's anger built and built until God finally allowed Shiloh, the the place where his tabernacle had been placed, the central place of worship for God, the place that that was marking them as a nation who worshiped God, God allowed that place to be conquered. 1 Samuel 4 records how Israel foolishly took the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle, took it from the Holy of Holies where it was meant to be be kept and worshipped as center point of their worship, as they worshiped God. They took that out and carried it into battle. God allowed the Philistines to conquer the ark, to kill the priests, Eli's sons, and 30,000 Israeli soldiers in one battle. That's the culmination. The, the implication of, of this long review of history really is simple. This last generation, this generation that came hundreds of years later, failed to learn from the earlier generations. The children of Exodus didn't learn to avoid sin. They they followed in the rebellion of their parents. But now, hundreds of years later, several generations later, when really this teaching is part of the national consciousness, they all know what happened in the the wilderness. They know what happened in the conquest generation. The generation still failed to learn. They incorporated the knowledge but they failed to learn from their knowledge to follow God. It was as if the people had forgotten God's judgments entirely. The Shiloh generation learned nothing from the Exodus generation. Yet what did the Lord do? Our psalm ends with a section that encourages us to learn from God's responses. Learn from God's responses. There's really three things to remember in this section that that we can learn from. First, remember God's grace. Verse 65, remember God's grace. Then the Lord awoke as if from sleep. Like a warrior overcome by wine, he drove his adversaries backwards. He put on them an everlasting reproach. 
Even though God allowed the Philistines to have that great victory over his people, it was only temporary. Remember the Philistines took the ark? And as soon as they took the, the, the ark and they set it in their temple, their, their false god Dagon, the idol they were worshiping, was found flat on his face. They tried to set him back up. He landed on his face and broke to pieces. And very quickly, the Philistines got rid of the ark. God arose and fought for himself. He did not abandon Israel. Instead, it was as if awakening from sleep, God once more fought for his people. This is grace at work. Grace, because it is entirely undeserved. They deserved the judgment that had fallen on them. They did not deserve God to come back and aid them. Remember God's grace. Second, remember God's judgment. Verse 67, he also rejected the tent of Joseph and did not choose the tribe of Ephraim, but chose the tribe of Judah, Mount Zion, which he loved. In other words, God cast off Ephraim, the, the favored tribe and, and the, the, the most mighty tribe at that time, and cast them off in judgment for the rebellion and instead selected Judah and ultimately Jerusalem at, in the heart there of Judah to serve as the host place for their ark. No longer would the ark reside in Shiloh within the tribe of Ephraim and now move to the tribe of Judah. The implication is that God's grace does not mean there is no judgment. There are consequences for sin. Remember that. And then lastly, remember God's faithfulness. Remember God's faithfulness. And he built his sanctuary like the heights, like the earth which he has founded forever. He also chose David his servant and took him from the sheepfolds. From the care of the ewes with suckling lambs, he brought him to shepherd Jacob his people and Israel his inheritance. So he shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. It's possible that David's even the king at the time Asaph created this song. Asaph was during David's reign and into Solomon's, so it could have been during that time. And he, he says, remember God's faithfulness. Not only did God choose Jerusalem, he chose David to lead his people. God gave Israel a faithful king. In fact, the line in verse 71, the, the line there, to shepherd Jacob, his people, that, that refers to a promise that God had made that was remembered by the northern tribes. When the northern tribes came and anointed David to be king of, uh, of Israel in 2 Samuel chapter 5, they re remember that God had promised, you will shepherd my people Israel. God had promised to give Israel a shepherding king. And David was the fulfillment of that promise. A, a literal shepherd, one that God plucked from shepherding sheep to care for his people. This is God's faithfulness on display. David was the living embodiment of God's faithfulness to his nation. Our psalm ends reminding us to learn from God's responses. God is gracious. He will judge, yet he is always, always faithful. The psalm ends here, but the lesson doesn't. The, the end of the psalm is simply the end of the example. But the, the lesson is that we are to teach and call the next generation to learn from history. 
we are to teach them and call them God's demonstrated faithfulness should encourage faithfulness. Our duty is to teach the next generation and call them to follow God, to point to all the historical examples of God's great displays of His faithfulness. The question is, will we be faithful in response to what God has called us? Will we teach the next generation so that they will be faithful? Will the next generation be faithful so they can teach their children? Next week, we have an opportunity to act on this admonition. Next week, we have our annual Thanksgiving praise service in the afternoon. Now, for those of you that are new, um, the, we sometimes call this in our church our show-and-tell service because we have a service entirely dedicated to, to showing and telling what God has done. Ultimately, we're doing that, though, because we want to call others to follow in the faithfulness of our God, to praise Him and follow Him. So we encourage everyone to come to that service and share what God has done and is doing in, in your lives. The reason we call it show and tell is we found it's helpful sometimes to bring an object and say, you know, every time I look at this, whatever this object is, this reminds me of what God has done. It keeps our focus on God rather than on people. Objects can serve as memorials. Just like that statue of Robert E. Lee, it can serve as a memorial. It can remind us of something good or something bad. We want to remember that God is active in our lives. So some of these objects may remind us of mistakes that we've made, mistakes through which God has graciously taught us and then shown his faithfulness by not abandoning us. Of course, you don't have to bring an object show. You can still share what God is doing and teaching you. That's the purpose of the service. And I bring that because we've seen today we have a duty to pass on the history of God's great work to the next generation. We have an opportunity next week to call others to follow God as we share how he is teaching us to follow him. Let me ask you, are you helping those around you learn about God's faithfulness? Are you helping them learn from the past lessons that God has taught you? Are you encouraging others to follow you as you follow Christ? And are you warning them from the experiences of your life, don't do what I've done when I disobeyed? Are you celebrating that even after failures, God remains faithful? God's demonstrated faithfulness should encourage faithfulness. Father, I thank you for this long psalm that we've looked at today that demonstrates how we are to use the past to encourage faithfulness in the present and how we are to take that and teach those who will carry the message of your faithfulness into the future. Father, I pray as a church that we would live out the admonitions of this psalm, that we would be men and women that are teaching the next generation about the wonders of our God and calling on them to follow you. We pray this in the name of our Savior,
Jesus Christ. Amen.